Let's pray together. Father, our sins are indeed many, and your mercy, no question, is more. And Lord, we thank you for the text that's before us this morning. We thank you for the, for the Bible. We thank you for Genesis 9. We praise you, Lord, for the rainbow, the sign of the covenant. And Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts, instruct us this morning from your word. We pray that you would be transforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus, who honored his father, you, who knew when to submit to authorities and also when to object to and oppose what wicked authorities were saying. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and that we would be Christ-like. We pray that you'd give us a holy, courageous, joyful boldness. And we ask that you do all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hopefully you have a copy of the scriptures in some form or another this morning, and you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. And as you turn there, I personally have been listening to a book called Brave New World. And in this book, the, the world has changed and the people of the civilization are being conditioned by the messaging of these world controllers. And the, the cultural messaging communicates to these people that they should not seek long-term monogamous relationships with a spouse. Uh, the messaging communicates that they should actually be promiscuous. The messaging communicates that they should all indulge themselves in this, this drug called Soma, which puts people into this euphoric state. And the messaging communicates that, that they should all stay in their appointed class system and do what the state has told them that they must do. And the point that the author is making is that in this culture, in our culture, the world as we know it, there are these powerful channels of information that, that start communicating to people what's right and what's wrong, and the culture is very powerful. And what the author is trying to show is that human beings should think for themselves, and human beings have the ability to determine what is right and what is wrong. And I think the author also intends to show that built into humanity is this sense that monogamous relationships are right, and that sexual purity is what is right and good and to be desired. And I bring this up because here in Genesis chapter 9, we're dealing with a man, Noah, who rejected the messages of his culture. If Noah had allowed the culture to tell him what was right and wrong, he never would have built this ark that, that uh, enabled him to be saved through the floodwaters of God's wrath. Uh, as we approach this text before us this morning, we're going to see that Noah is a kind of new Adam. And so I'm going to refer to him as new Adam Noah. And the text is going to start with new Adam, Noah, in, in, in Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7, as twice at the beginning and the end of the passage, verses 1 through 7, 
the blessing of Adam is recommunicated to Noah. And then at the end of the passage, in verses 20 through 29, we're going to see new Adam Noah again. And that time, this time, at the end of the passage, Noah is going to be like Adam in the sense that he's going to sin and he's going to have his shameful nakedness exposed and there's going to be blessing and cursing just as there was in the garden when Adam sinned and then he and Eve realized that they were naked and then there were blessings and curses that followed. In between, in verses 8 through 11, God is going to say that he's going to establish his covenant with Noah and with Noah's seed. And, and this is important because it tells us that what God set out to do through Adam, that is, fill the world with his image bearers, he's going to continue to pursue that agenda through Noah and through the promise made about the seed of the woman. That, that line of descent is going to continue through Noah. And then matching verses 8 through 11 are verses 18 and 19, where we have this account of who the seed of Noah, the sons of Noah are, and how just as God wanted uh, the seed of Adam and then the seed of Noah to fill the earth, all the earth was populated from the descendants of Noah. And then at the center of this chapter, in verses 12 through 17, we have God asserting that he's going to establish his covenant, and he's going to put his bow in the clouds to remind him of the covenant. So, in, in, in the middle of the passage, we have this glorious depiction of God's mercy. So if I were to summarize the whole thing in just four words, I would say you've got blessing in 9, 1 through 7, and then you've got this emphasis on seed in verses 8 through 11 and 18 and 19, God's mercy in the middle of everything in verses 12 through 17, and then sin and death in verses 20 through 29. Let's look together at new Adam Noah in Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. So as we read Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 should immediately come to mind. We read here, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is exactly what Genesis 1, 28 says. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then right after that in Genesis 1, God says to the man and the woman, have dominion over the animals. And at that time, it seems that what we read here would not have been the case. We're about to read of how the fear of man came upon the animals. And so apparently prior to this, there would not have been this dread, this terror, this flight from the animals in response to the man. And, and so it seems that we go from a situation where the animals were comfortable with those who were to exercise dominion over them. And even at the, at the flood, the, the animals come to Noah and they enter the ark with him. And apparently they're, they're not frightened of him and, and they're willing to enter the ark with him. But now, after sin in Genesis 3, and after the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, now, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. So it seems that we've gone, to, gone from this holy dominion that man was given over the animals to now 
a tyrannical dread as, as things have been altered. And then not only do we have this interaction with Genesis 1, verse 28, we also have interaction with the next two verses, Genesis 1, 29 and 30. For in, in those verses, in chapter 1, God gave to man every green plant and, and all the, the growth, all the vegetation of the earth to eat. But now he says, starting in verse 2, at the end of the verse, into your hand they are delivered. And then verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So there's another alteration where not only do the animals now fear the man, now uh, man is permitted to eat meat. But man must eat meat in accordance with God's stipulations. So in verse 4, the stipulation is, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. I think that what informs this prohibition is a statement that's made over in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, which is perhaps a verse that you've memorized. In Leviticus 17, 11, Moses writes, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so there's this significance about lifeblood, and, and this uh, speaks to the, the sacrificial system and the way that, that substitutionary sacrifice to bring about atonement will be accomplished through the sacrifice of these animals. And because of that, because of the significance of blood with relationship to the sacrifices, man can eat meat, but he must, he must not eat blood. And then in the next verse, the Lord says in verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. The next phrase reads in the ESV, from his fellow man. You, you might have a translation that reads, from his brother. That's what the text actually says. And, and it seems that there's an allusion there, that reference to the brother, back to the way that Cain killed Abel. So what the Lord is saying is that he is going to see to it that justice is done on the earth. If an animal kills a person, God will uh, seek justice for that blood. If a person kills a person, God will see to it that justice is done. And then uh, verse 6 brings this to a close. After the Lord says in verse 5, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, the Lord says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is a very important verse. And, and many people see in this verse the institution of human government that government has the ability, the authority, to take the life of those who commit murder. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So because of the value of human life made in the image and likeness of God, God grants to humanity the ability, the authority, to visit capital punishment or the death penalty upon murderers. And then finally, verse 7 is like a restatement of verse 1. And you, God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now, I want to I make some comments 
about how we respond to verses 1 through 7, how we apply these, these statements to our lives. The first thing I want to observe is that from verse 1 and verse 7, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, and you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. I think we can say, God wants the world to be full of people. Now, having said that, I would also observe that Noah himself, he only had three sons. Okay, so if you look at the end of chapter 9, uh, we see there um, the, the three sons of Noah. Down in verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 29, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And that's a statement that's a lot like those statements in the genealogy, where we read that so-and-so had, he lived this long, and he had other sons sons and daughters, and he died. It doesn't say that about Noah. It doesn't say, and he had other sons and daughters, like it says of so many others. So it seems that Noah only had these three kids. So... Uh, The the Bible, when it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it doesn't mean have as many kids as you possibly can, but I think it does mean God loves children, and God wants his image bearers to multiply and to fill the earth. Now, in relationship to verse 6, I want to put God's desire to fill the world with his image bearers next to this institution of human government. And I want to observe that God also wants justice to be done in the world, but God determines what justice is. So God is the one who says murder is wrong. God is the one who says theft is wrong. God is the one who determines right and wrong. And I would suggest that God has said it is right for people to be fruitful and multiply. So let's just say that there's a government in the earth that says well, we've had our experts look into the situation and we've had our experts examine how much food there is and how much, how much of it, how, what, what kind of available resources there are on the earth. And there are too many people. And so we are going to limit every family to one child because the earth is overpopulated. Well, I would suggest to you that that is cultural messaging that believers in the Bible, people who have, have, the scriptures, people who know God, people who have the ability to think critically, they should look at the Bible and say, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have more than one child. And then they should look at their government requirement and they should say, the government is not doing what God told it to do. God told it to uh, enforce right and wrong, and it's now enforcing something that doesn't have anything to do with right and wrong. And believing people, I would suggest to you, should feel freedom. They should feel no compulsion to abide by that one-child policy. Similarly, let's say there's a government that says, uh, we've had our health experts look at the situation, and we've discerned that it's unhealthy to eat meat. Well, I, I think that believing people can look at the Bible and say, that's not a regulation that we feel like we need to follow. God has given to humanity the ability to eat meat. So I hope you hear what I'm saying here. When we look at Romans 13, Paul does say submit to the governing authorities, but he also speaks of how the governing authorities are to be ministers of of righteousness. They are to do, they're to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. And it's God who determines what is good, and it's God who determines what is evil. So let's just say that our culture was doing what they're doing in Brave New World, and they're saying, 
well, you shouldn't expect to stay married to the same person for the entirety of your, of your life. That's cultural messaging that you should reject. If, if the culture is saying, well, it's good to be promiscuous, that's cultural messaging that you should reject. If they say, um, it's, it's right and proper to kill a baby that you don't want, that is cultural messaging that you should... Re if they say, it's wrong for you to impose your beliefs on other people, and if they don't want to hear the gospel from you, you should not impose the... You should not try to communicate the gospel to them. That's cultural messaging that you should reject. The government is outside its lane on those things. And we should feel no pangs of conscience about proclaiming the gospel, about obeying the Bible, about doing anything that God has commanded us to do. So what I'm trying to do here is look at what the text says and the way that God blessed Noah and said to him, be fruitful and multiply, and then the way that God brings certain rights and authorities to man, and I'm trying to apply those things to our lives. God wants justice. If the government says, if the government says, we're going we're gonna to privilege people of a certain color, and we're going to disadvantage people of another, the government is outside its lane. We should reject such messaging. We should stand opposed to such messaging. Verses 8 through 11, the Lord says to Noah in verse 8, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. That word offspring in the ESV represents the Hebrew word seed. This is a very important word in the book of Genesis. Uh, God has made a promise about the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. And he's going to make promises about the seed of Abraham as we continue through the book. And that word seed is going to occur over and over again. Really significant word. The Lord says to Noah, I establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. And, verse 10, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. Okay, so this is for all people and for all animals. Here's what the Lord says. He reiterates himself, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so in response to this text, we fear no worldwide flood, do we? None of us has a fear, rightfully so, that the oceans are going to rise up out of their boundary and wash over all the continents and kill all people and all land animals. We don't fear, we shouldn't fear that. And if some people come up with an apocalyptic scenario whereby, let's say, the polar ice caps are going to melt and the oceans are actually going to flood the world and it's going to be a worldwide uh, total loss of humanity, you can say to those people, actually, I know what's going to happen in the future. What's going to happen in the future is not that the world's going to be deluged with water and all people die that way. What's going to happen in the future, according to the Bible, is the world is going to be visited with fire. And it's God's judgment that's going to come in fire. That's the way it's going to come. So it's not going to be floods. You don't need to worry about that. God is going to keep his covenant. He's made this covenant. He's going to keep his covenant. And in verses 12 through 17, we see him make this promise about the covenant. This passage is awesome. This chapter, the Bible, is awesome. And, and I, I want to I draw your attention to the beauty and the glory of verses 12 through 17 because it is such a magnificent uh, piece of Scripture and, and literature. So look at verse 12. And God said, 
This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And then look down at verse 17, where God's going to say the same words in the same order. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I, that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That's on purpose. Verses 12 and 17 are bracketing this intersection that's about God's mercy in the gift of the rainbow. And then just as there's this framing uh, of this section with these statements, this is the sign of the covenant in verse 12, and this is the sign of the covenant in verse 17, the next statements also correspond to one another. Look at what the Lord says in verses 13 and 14. He says, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds. Okay, so I would draw your attention to the word bow in verse 13, covenant in verse 13, and then the bow is seen in the clouds in verse 14. Look at verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So I think you know where I'm going. If you've listened to me preach at any length, you know that I'm going to say this is chiastically structured. The, the, the statements are mirroring one another. Verse 12 is mirrored by verse 17. Verses 13 and 14 is mirrored by verse 16. And what's at the center of all this is what is most important. So look at what God says in verse 15. He says, I will remember my covenant. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. That's the covenant. God is not going to destroy, destroy the world again with a flood. And when God says, I will remember my covenant, you can count on that promise. You may recall that in Genesis 8.1, we read, the Lord remembered Noah. And I argued when we looked at that passage together last week that what that means is that God is remembering the covenant that he, that he said he was going to establish with Noah in Genesis 6-18. You remember the Lord says there, I will establish my covenant with you. And then uh, he, he gives Noah the instructions for the ark. Noah builds the ark. And, and then the flood comes. And when it says uh, the Lord remembered Noah, it doesn't indicate that the Lord had forgotten about him. He'd gone absent-minded. I go absent-minded. I forget things I'm supposed to remember. The Lord doesn't do that. The Lord is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything is present to him all at once. He's not locked in this sequence of time. And so for the Lord to remember his covenant means the Lord set out to keep his covenant. And that's what it means here as well. The Lord is not saying, maybe I'm going to go absent-minded, but then I'm going to see that rainbow and I'm going to be reminded. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is the Lord is committing that he is going to keep this covenant. And the rainbow is is not because God is in danger of forgetting something. The rainbow is like an ongoing attestation that God is going to keep his word. And it's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful, and what it communicates to us is the mercy of God. Because, because the truth is, as John Calvin wrote, if we got what we, would, what we deserved, if we got what we have coming to us, there would be a daily deluge of waters. 
there would be an ongoing need to flood the world and kill all the sinners. But the Lord is merciful. And the Lord says, I'm going to show you my justice. I'll send the flood. But then I want to make this promise that I will not again flood the earth. And the mercy of God is beautiful. It, it gives us the opportunity to repent of sin and to walk with God. And that brings us uh, to another statement about Noah's children and God's purpose to fill the earth in verses 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Note that that's mentioned. Uh, that's going to come up significantly in the next section of text. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So you can see that concern to fill the world with God's image bearers, with the seed of, of Noah, who is the seed of Adam, as the genealogy in Genesis 5 makes clear. And that brings us to this closing section of the chapter in verses 20 through 29, where again we see new Adam, Noah. So Noah is blessed like Adam in verses 1 through 7 and told to be fruitful and multiply. And then he sins like Adam here in verses 20 through 29. So we read here in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. And this may remind you of some earlier statements uh, like, for instance, in Genesis chapter 6, um, verse 1, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And uh, in, in 4.26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So that, that word began, it's sort of marking out a new starting point in the, in the flow of the, the unfolding story. Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. And this also may remind you of an earlier statement in, in, in the Bible, in Genesis 2.8, when God planted a garden. So God plants a garden, now Noah plants a vineyard. And then in the same way that Adam sinned with the fruit of the garden, verse 21, Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Uh, it's interesting, the Hebrew word that's rendered uncovered is, is translated in other places, go into exile. And it's one of those cases where um, a, a literal thing is being metaphorically extended. And the reason they, they take the word to be uncovered and, and extend that metaphorically into go into exile is because when a people were exiled, when a, a nation was defeated by another nation and then carried off into captivity, often they were stripped naked and humili humiliated in that way. And, and so uh, Moses is aware of this, and I think he's consciously using this term to warn Israel about what he's going to warn them about at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is that if they break the covenant, they're going to be exiled. And we've already seen exile from the Garden of Eden, and now Noah like Adam, is naked and ashamed, and he, la he lays there uncovered in his tent. Um, this, is, this is one of those things about the Bible that exposes to us what kind of people we are as human, being, human beings. Because Noah is the man that we read about in chapter 6, uh, verses 8 and 9, that he found favor in the eyes of the, eyes of the Lord. 
and that he was righteous in verse 9 and blameless in his generation. And then in verse 7, the Lord says, I have seen that you are righteous before me. So here's this righteous man who by faith, according to Hebrews 11, built the ark. And again, it would, have, it would have been an act of faith to hear the word of God. A worldwide flood is coming. The only way you're going to survive, survive is, is if you build this massive boat. And Noah believes. And because of that faith, he's reckoned righteous. But that doesn't mean that he never sins. It doesn't mean that he doesn't cre- commit a grievous sin that is shameful. And that's what he does here. But the focus on this passage is not on the shameful, grievous sin of Noah as bad as it is. It is bad. And we should lament it. And we should learn that none of us is immune from grievous, shameful sin. And passages like this teach us that everybody has things of which they are ashamed. Everybody does. Moses did. Noah does. David did. Peter did. And on and on we could go. The only person exempt from this kind of thing is Jesus. So this also shows us But the flood didn't fix the problem. The flood did not change people's hearts at the fundamental level at which we need our hearts to be changed. But I think the focus in this passage is actually on Ham. The focus in this this section of the text, yes, Noah sinned as Adam his father had before. And yes, uh, Noah lay naked as Adam was exposed as naked. But the focus here is on Ham. Look at verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan. Now, why would Moses keep mentioning that Ham is the father of Canaan? And and we're going to see that it's actually Canaan who is cursed because of what his father did here in in this narrative. And I think the reason for this is Moses, the author of this text, is writing to the generation that is going to go conquer Canaan. And so this text is even communicating to Moses' generation, we're going to go in there and visit God's wrath upon the Canaanites. And that wrath upon the Canaanites is due in part because of what Ham, the, the son of Noah, did to his father. Well, what did he do? Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about what Ham did, and there's, there have been some people who have looked at how these phrases, saw the nakedness of, are used elsewhere in the Bible, and they've suggested either that Ham perhaps sexually assaulted his father, did some sort of violence to his father, or that there was some form of, of same-sex behavior going on. Uh, I, I don't think that interpretation is correct, and I, and I want to give you several reasons why I think that interpretation should be rejected. First, anytime this phrase, see the nakedness of, is used with reference to um, inappropriate sexual behavior, it's always between a male and a female. There's other language that is used to describe same-sex behavior. So if, if, if same-sex behavior were the problem, if Ham had somehow done something to his drunken father, I don't think that this language would be used. It would be described the way that we see, let's say, for instance, uh, same-sex sin described in Genesis chapter 19 or same-sex sin described in Leviticus 18. So there are other phrases that are used to describe that, and it's not as though the Bible is um, ashamed or trying to go around saying these kinds of things because clearly in Genesis, 
The Bible is very straightforward about that kind of sin and describes it so that everybody knows what's going on. So I don't think there's anything hidden here. So the first thing I want to say is the phrases are not used with reference to same-sex sin. Secondly, I don't think there's sexual violence here or, or any kind of assault that happens because, again, we do read about violent sexual assault in, for instance, Genesis chapter 35. And so Moses is not afraid to describe that when it happens, and he doesn't use this language to describe it. Thirdly, look at the remedy for the situation in verse 22. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, so it seems that the remedy for what Ham had done wrong is for Shem and Japheth, number one, to cover up their father's shame, and number two, not to look at their father's shame. So we find what Ham did wrong by contrasting what Shem and Japheth did right. And so what Ham did wrong was, number one, he, he exulted in the shameful display of his father's nakedness. And then he went outside and he declared it to his brothers. He told his two brothers outside. He, he looked and then he told others what Ham has done is he has dishonored his father. This is very significant. I think that one of the indications that our culture doesn't feel how significant this is is the fact that we look for other explanations for why Ham would be cursed in the way that he is. And we look for those other explanations because we don't feel the honor for our fathers that we should. And so we don't, we're not affronted by what Ham did. We're not offended by what Ham did. Why is what Ham did offensive? Because to dishonor your father is to dishonor God. Fathers represent the structure of authority, the, the patriarchy. It, fathers represent the, the headship, the, the very authority of God himself enacted in your life. And if you look at that authority and you mock it, what you're saying is, I don't respect authority. And the heart that says, I don't respect my father. In fact, I will mock him. In fact, I will get others to join me in mocking him. Is a heart that says, I don't honor God. I don't fear God. And I will mock God. And I will, I will encourage others to join me in mocking God. Ken Matthews in his commentary on the book of Genesis says that Ham's sin assailed the principal underpinning of family stability by defaming the father. I hope the children that are within the sound of my voice are listening right here. Children, you need to honor your father. This is what Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 commands you to do. Honor your father and mother. And it's reinforced in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then Paul goes on to talk about how this commandment is the first one that comes with a promise. Kids, you've got to honor your father. And note that this is in a passage where the father does something shameful. The father does something dishonorable. And I think the text is teaching that even if that happens, he still deserves honor. Even if he does something that you regret, 
even if he does something you don't approve of. You don't respond to it with mockery, with exaltation. You try to cover it. You try not to see it. But you continue to honor the Father. So I think the application of this text for us is clear. We've got to honor our fathers. Because to honor the Father, to honor your Father, is to honor God. To honor the authorities in place in your life is to accept ultimately the authority of God in your life. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. So Noah announces the same curse over Canaan that God had announced over the serpent. Cursed are you. And, and what this does for the readers of the book of Genesis is it establishes a connection between the serpent who brought sin into the world and the Canaanites whom the Israelites were to destroy when they came up out of Egypt to conquer the land of promise. The Canaanites are to be destroyed because they're seed of the serpent. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And then that statement is elaborated upon as Noah blesses Shem and Japheth. Verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Canaan is to serve both Shem and Japheth, and God blesses both, or, or Noah pronounces a blessing from God on both Shem and Japheth. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that, and I'd love to talk with you about it further. But what I want to say at this point is, I hope nobody looks at this text and, re and responds in this kind of way. Well, that old sorry Noah, why would he be so mean to Ham and Canaan? N nobody should look at this text and side with Ham and Canaan. You know what doing that is like? Doing that is deciding that you're going to side with Voldemort. It's, it's deciding that you're going to side with Sauron. It's deciding that you're going to pull for the bad guys. It's deciding, ultimately, that you're going to be on Satan's side. Don't do that. That is not the way that you should respond to this text. You should respond to this text by saying something like this. Look at what a merciful God the God of the Bible is. Even though Noah is a wretched sinner, because of his faith... God regards him as righteous. And even though Noah got himself stone drunk so that he didn't realize that he was lying naked and exposed in his tent, God mercifully is willing to forgive wretched sinners like Noah, like me, like you, if we will trust him, if we'll repent and believe. So we want to respond by siding, by identifying with people like Noah, people like Shem, people like Japheth. Now, in closing, I just want to make a, a comment or two about how the flood has not fixed the problem. We can see from what happened with Noah that the heart of man, all of us, is still sinful. It's not as though God baptized the earth in water with the flood, and that changed everyone's heart so that they only wanted to do what was good all the time. No, we saw in Genesis 8.21 that the inclination of man's heart is still evil from his youth all the time. So the flood has not changed the heart. Also, 
the fact that the floodwaters have receded has not made it so that Noah and his children are back in the Garden of Eden. They're not. And then finally, from what we saw at the beginning of the text, when the Lord says, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, we see that there's the expectation of more violence, more injustice, and there's the expectation that justice is going to need to be sought and done. So the flood hasn't fixed the problem. To fix the problem, Jesus has to come. To fix the problem, Jesus has to do justice in his life and then die on the cross to establish God's justice and then rise from the dead to conquer sin and death, which, which is the consequence of sin, and then rise and ascend into heaven and pour out the Holy Spirit which does change our hearts, which does make it so that we can overcome sinful impulses. So, as I said earlier, if Noah had allowed his culture to shape his views of right and wrong, he would never have built that ark. And I, wanna, I, w- I just want to invite you to, to look at this question and to think about this question, to seek the Lord on this question. How is the culture shaping you. And what we all need to do is we need to let the Bible, let God through the Bible define for us what is right and what is wrong. And so often our culture is saying wrong is right. Evil is good. And we cannot let the, sh- the culture shape us on those points. As an extension of this question, that I want to leave you with. How is the culture shaping you? I want to ask you the question and encourage you to think on it. What is your vision of the good life? Here's a little personal testimony from my own life. Growing up, I've been watching with my sons this um, documentary that's on ESPN about Michael Jordan. And as I watch this documentary, what it reminds me of is the way that I thought and felt in junior high. And the way that I thought and felt when I was a 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grader is the way that all of my contemporaries thought and felt about Michael Jordan. We wanted to be like Mike. And, and you think about the, you know the commercial, like Mike. If I could be like Mike, everybody wanted to be like Mike. I could give you the kid's name in, in my class. He was a year older than me, but he was on my basketball team, and he was the most like Mike. He was the best athlete. He had Michael Jordan's mannerisms down. He, he wore number 23. He, he moved like Michael Jordan. We all wanted to be like him because he was like Mike. The culture was defining for me what the good life looked like. Now, what this documentary is doing and what the articles about Michael Jordan that have been coming out over the years, what they're doing is showing that that is actually not the good life. That does not lead to a soul-deep sense of joy in God. No, in 2013, there was an article about Michael Jordan, and the article largely was about how he was trying so desperately to recapture what he had in his glory days. And the glory was gone, and he was left empty. And he, and he, he has trouble sleeping He has trouble maintaining relationships. And essentially, the only terms on which you can be in relationship with Michael Jordan are his terms. 
If, the, if you're not in relationship with him on his terms, you don't get along with him. And you don't continue in relationship with him. He is not living the good life. So I want to say to you, the glory of sports accomplishments does not guarantee the good life. Reject that lie that the culture tells. Having great wealth does not lead to the good life. There's no, I mean, there are richer people than Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is richer than I can imagine. It It has not produced happiness in his life. And then you can just extrapolate out from there. Having all the nicest clothes, as Michael Jordan does. Having access to all the most powerful people, as Michael Jordan does. And on and on we can go. This does not produce the good life. How is the culture shaping you? What is your vision of the good life? You need to take good as the Bible defines it. And then you need to measure everything the culture wants to say by the scriptures. And we need to be guilty about, feel guilty about things that the Bible says are wrong. And we need to feel good about things that the Bible says are good. And the only way to get there, brothers and sisters, is to make it so that we get more input from the Bible than we get from the culture. And we need to pray that God would do it in our hearts. We need to pray that God would shape our moral imagination, that he would equip us with the ability, as the author of Hebrews describes it, to discern between right and wrong, good and evil. We want to be Christ-like. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good to us, Lord. We thank you for the rainbow. We thank you for the sign of the covenant. We thank you for not giving up on humanity and just destroying everybody, which you were well within your rights to do. Lord, we thank you for reiterating the blessing of Adam to Noah. We thank you, Lord, that so many people obeyed the the command to be fruitful and multiply, that we're here, that we get to live, that we get to know you, that we get to hear your word. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that you will remember the covenant. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to establish justice, to do righteousness, to show us how to live. And Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to discern the truth. We pray that you would help us to reject the culture's lies about what the good life looks like, about how the world thinks we ought to live. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those like Noah who become heirs to the righteousness that is by faith because we hear your word, we know it's true, and we enact it. Lord, we ask that you'd make us strong by the power of your spirit. We pray that you'd make us humble by the glory of Christ. We pray that you'd make us bold because Christ has commanded us to go make disciples. Help us to do it in his name. Amen.